Uh, we are in Genesis 31 and working our way through it. And, and we are, when I say moving at a rapid pace, I know to finish it out by really, as we journey through scripture, I do want us to get the grip and then be in Exodus starting the new year. Hopefully, as we work through these first portions of scripture, we get an idea of what's going on. And I leave it up here just because we talk about the Pentateuch. I'm going to be focusing in and on Exodus, so really hammering Exodus and what's going on as we close out the year. But obviously, we're trying to work through these first five books, a critical foundational uh, books. Interestingly enough, first, second, and third John towards the end uh, of, of the New Testament and also l- written fairly late in that first century. But we'll be going all the way to Job after that. We'll do a short, uh, what I call a spiritual boot camp, and we'll be sending that out of a two-week, uh, two-series a two-week series that we're doing on reading scripture, prayer, uh, being involved in church, and how to be a witness tied to um, you know, what scripture's mandate is for us as believers. That'll be at the end of January, but then I'm going to dive into the book of Job. So we will be next year in some of the oldest Bible literature that's out there. Uh, Job was a story that took place before we're, you know, right at the time of Abraham. So we're right in this window, but it was one of the earliest books of the Bible there um, from oral tradition all the way down. So we'll be in Job in, um, in the first part of 2022. So we'll be in a lot of Old Testament books, but I think that's exciting. Obviously, on Wednesday night, know your Bible, working through these just systematically. Now I'm going to throw up Genesis 1 through 11. This is important to, to always keep in your mind. It's a great place. There's a lot of contention here. Uh, especially in the area of creation. And when you mess with creation and the idea of creation, remember I've shared this with you, um, I believe the Bible is to be interpreted literally, and so the six days of creation are six days of creation. There's a reason for that. Corruption is what? What do we talk about when we say corruption? It is sin. See, if you get creation wrong in the six-day creation, you'll have death before sin. And then it seems kind of odd that death is the punishment for sin when you already had death. And anyone who is, when I say as a theistic evolutionary viewpoint, and I'm not trying to be harsh on it, I would never want to be harsh, but just to kind of push back mentally is to say, you have this problem of sin happening before death. But when you look at scripture, literally, you have creation, you have corruption, we see the punishment of death, then we get what? Catastrophe, that is the what? The flood, the flood right? Massive punishment for the rampant wickedness. We get a purified environment. We have one family, the most righteous family on earth, right? And then we still end up with confusion not long after. And what's confusion? That's at the what? Tower of Babel. And that's where you get languages. That's where you get dialects. In in some ways, that's where you get misunderstanding. Because when everyone speaks the same language and the same dialect, that means it's um, it's not aunt or aunt. It's not potato, potato. It's not, um, what was the one that someone just said? Oh, um, I get a shopping what to go through the store with? What do you call it? Cart, right? That's what normal people do. My sister-in-law calls it a buggy. It ain't a buggy. It's a shopping cart. But she comes from, her mom's from Alabama. So we had this whole thing. Well, I got to get a buggy. And my brother-in-law's like, it's cart. And my sister-in-law says, I grew up here in buggy all my life. And I'm like, the Chinese call it a cart, so it must be a cart, because I've seen it for, yeah, so it was a fun, but one person calls it a bug, you don't have any of this, none of this discrepancy, and I'm not saying it's bad to call it a, a buggy versus a cart, I mean, you can be wrong if you want, 
Um, how, do you, how do you say crayon, the thing kids color with? And some people say what? A crayon, right? Have you heard of someone call it a crown? It's a crayon. This one drives me crazy, right? Because a crown is something a king or queen wears, but a crayon is what a child colors with. So if you want to give me a crown, I'll take it, but I don't want your crayons, right? That's how I distinguish it. But you know what's funny? I got a kid that calls it crowns. My wife's like, crayon. It is a crayon. Yeah, mom, crown. I'm like, crayon. But this. <laughs> Somebody here has polluted my children and their ability to say crayon. Just to argument sake. Yeah. You gotta speak northern, you can hear crown. Is it the north that did this? Well, then it's even worse. I thought it was southern people that did this. Now I know that the south had it right. Now I'm even more adamant about it. Where, what, you know, I would say, what vowel is in there? It's not an O, it's an A. Crayon. Crayon. <laughs> I don't want to get into this. I, I, uh, who's, I'm going through all this. Who's ever played? It's poetry for Neanderthals. Okay, it's a game where you can only use one-syllable words or you get bonked on the head. I'm playing with children. Guess who got bonked the most? So now I said the word water, um, which is two syllables, apparently. Um, and so now my family keeps saying water to me, water, because my little niece, who is nine, kills at this game with all one-syllable words and never makes a mistake. And her uncle is drooling in the corner trying to think of how to say ocean with one syllable. And he used the word water instead of sea. But either way, you know how, how, how good I am on syllables, so I won't argue too long with it. But we like crayon in our family. So either way, all of that to say confusion is all that arguments, all dialects. We always think it's either French or Italian or this or that. But actually, there was no dialects. There was no confusion at all. You could speak perfectly to somebody and they knew exactly what you meant because God confused languages. But it was his mercy that did that. So that's a little bit of our past I want us to kind of look at where we're here now, finishing up the story of Jacob. And here's the reality. Um, Jacob has been gone for quite some time. And I just want to throw this slide up. We've gone through Abraham, Isaac, we're on Jacob. And obviously, you know, we're going to land on Joseph to close out the story. Jacob has been gone. And I, I put down on my notes, have you ever been somewhere and you realized it was time to get back home? Right? Doesn't that happen? I had a great time in Florida but I was ready to come home. My brother Bobby today is like, so how did you last eight days not being home? I said, well, it was a good time, but yeah, I was ready to, I'm ready to get back home. I want to sleep in my own bed. I want to get back to my own routine. That's normal, right? How about 20 years somewhere else? And I put here, maybe you felt you've overextended your welcome or you're tired of being there and you want to get back to normal. Jacob, after 20 years, realizes that it's time to go back to Canaan the disposition of his uncle Laban has changed toward him. His male cousins have a negative view of him, so he knows it is time to return. Here's my reminder. Abraham was sent to Canaan, and he's never left, right? He died there. Isaac, did he ever go back to find a wife? Who was sent back? Servant was sent back. Isaac's never left Canaan. Jacob is the one who's sent away and now has spent 20 years gone, and it's now time to head back um, there. We've gone through the history, Genesis 1 through 11. We are now on this one person, right? The zeroed in account, 12 to 50, 
is about Abraham. This is Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And we're walking through his family right now, how it all unfolds. And so we're picking up the story with Jacob's clandestine exit. He's leaving in the dark of night, so to speak. He's leaving in a secret, but he's going to still end up being, and this is where the list comes in, he's going to be listed, he's going to be confronted by Laban. So what happens? Look at chapter 31. As we know from the story, as I mentioned to you, Laban's perspective has changed towards Jacob, and so has his son's perspective. Uh, They are turning sour And it's obvious to everyone, not just the family. Laban goes off to shear the sheep and Jacob packs up everything and heads out of Padan Haran. And he first, he starts out by consulting his wives in 4 through 16. Look at verse 4 of 31. And Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field unto his flock. Now, when you want to have a secret meeting, what do you do? Where do you go if you want to have a secret meeting typically? They go in the field, right? Because what do they live in? Tents. And what can you hear through tents? Have you ever gone camping? Everything, right? So what do you do? You go out in the field. Why in the field? Well, it looks like it's obvious you're having a secret meeting, but no one can hear you because you're out there. So this is a tight family meeting that he brings out his wives and he's going to consult them. And he's basically going to walk through the circumstances. In a field, no one can spy on them. They all agree that Laban, now he's talking about their father, has changed his mind about, about them in general. Now, this is a point that's really worth noting. When Laban confronts Jacob, he says, you've kidnapped my daughters. You've taken them like they didn't want to leave. And what Laban doesn't know is he doesn't have the support of his daughters. He assumes Jacob is the outsider, and he assumes as patriarch that the daughters, though given in marriage to Jacob, are still his. And then what does he think of the kids that Jacob had? They're also Laban's. He takes possession of those children in his mind. But I want you to notice in 4 through 16, they say, and your father has deceived me, he says. And then they say, um, he talks about all that, the, that his dad has, their dad has done. And I'm going to try to find it here. They say in 16, for all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God has said unto thee, do. And I want you to note something here, and just to see it. He does consult with his wives. He does talk to them. He pitches the idea. You see what he's, and I'm not saying he's doing something wrong. I'm actually saying, you see how he is at least dialoguing with them. And I want you to see that the support of his wives was towards their husband in this realm because they see their dad not leaving any wealth for their children. Laban has given nothing to them besides selling them, right? What was the bounty for Jacob? You get my daughters as wives. You get to work for me to get my daughter. That's, that's all he gave. So he basically sold his own children to Jacob, and they recognized that. Now, after a certain period of days, it's about three days, Laban finds out that Jacob's left, and he pursues after Jacob. It takes him seven days to catch up. Now, Jacob is moving an massive amount of animals. So I was talking, we have a farmer in our, our church and he runs, or actually his daughter runs, a thousand head of cattle. Sounds like a lot, right? Which is a lot of cattle. When you realize that Jacob gives to his brother 580 
different types of animals and it's nothing to him, I want you in your mind for a second to think about how many animals he had that he had to move. Now, I've never been on a cattle drive, but I've read enough Westerns to know you don't move fast, right? He has all of his entourage, his house, his kids. His kids are not old. They've all been born in this last six some years or, or um, I don't remember how many years it is. It might be six or seven years that's been taking place or 14 years there. So they're not old. They're not adults. They're still children or teenagers. And so he's moving, but it takes seven days for Laban with nobody tying him down to catch up. So you can, you can imagine two things. One, it tells you how hard Jacob was pushing his people to get away. And it also tells you how eager Laban was to catch up with him. Now, Laban does catch up to Jacob, and Laban does what Jacob probably has done in the past. He accuses Jacob. He says, you're stealing away. You're you're leaving, and he accuses him of taking his daughters captive. And then there's the big one of stealing his gods. And I didn't read through the scripture on it, but what did Rachel do when when they left? She went into his house and took what? Took his little idols. Now, Here's what I want you to understand. There's a lot tied into these idols. One, there's a lot of talk about these idols representing (coughs) fertility. Now, why would Rachel steal them? She wanted to have more children, right? She had Joseph, but no others. Now, also, these gods represented your inheritance. This is probably the bigger reason. I was reading a commentator who said, if he just sold his gold statues, he would just do what? If you're Laban, make new gold statues, right? But when you took the gods that were in the home, in their culture, that meant you were the possessor of the inheritance. So this is like the will and testament. And someone just, it'd be like me taking my dad's blank paper, filling in my name, signing it and saying, whoever holds the paper has the will, right? That's, he said, this is in my pocket. And that's more likely what Laban is struggling with is the the inheritance is missing. The symbolic your next has just disappeared, and he assumes it's Jacob. Now, Jacob, not knowing that Rachel took it, says, go ahead and look for him. And if you find him with somebody, I'll kill them. That's a pretty gutsy move, right? Have you ever known teenagers to steal stuff? What if one of his sons stole the idols? Jacob is saying to his father-in-law, I'll kill him. So a pretty rash move, right? Pretty bold statement. Whoever has it, I'll kill him. Everyone that's with him is family, pretty much, except for servants. So Laban searches. This is no token search. He searches every tent. He gets to Rachel's tent, and she uses the time of a woman to not stand up. She stays in her saddle, the camel saddle, for comfort, and says, I can't get up. And so she's hidden the gods there. Now, when Laban comes out and he has no gods, now Jacob pushes back and he confronts Laban and he starts stating his case and the changed wages. Now, there's a question for you. Do you think Laban came alone? He probably had his sons and he had other people from the community there. And what we see is Jacob hurling accusation back at Laban is actually Jacob stating his case in front of all the relatives and all the people because a decision is going to take place. 
Laban claims everything of Jacob's. Jacob says, this is my stuff. You've changed my wages. I, I own this. This is mine. It's not yours. It's mine. And here's what's really fascinating. It's a case made in front of witnesses. And Laban still, if you look at 3143, let me jump down here. And Laban answered, because Jacob says, except the God of my father, the God of Abram, and the fear of Isaac have been with me. And it's not the fear of Isaac, but Isaac's reverence of God have been with me. Surely thou hast sent away now empty. God has seen mine affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight. In other words, he's, he already told you not to confront me. Laban was told by God in a dream, do not say anything positive or negative to Jacob. He doesn't obey God. He comes right in charging, why have you kidnapped my daughters? And so he, he, he says, God told me otherwise. In other words, he's saying, I would have gone to battle right here, but God said this, but at least he, I'm not going to attack you. But he says negative things. And then Laban answered and said unto Jacob, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is mine, and what can I do this day unto these my daughters under their children which they have borne? So what's his response to Jacob's charge? It's all mine anyway. Now, therefore, come thou, let us make a covenant. And there's a paragraph switch there between 43 and 44. And I want you to realize this. Laban claims everything. That's 43. But clearly those with him ruled the other way. And the other witnesses there said, it's Jacob's. The people that came with Laban... Because Jacob makes his case and Laban states his case and the people, knowing the situation, they all live in the same community, have obviously ruled against Laban because it all changes. And what does Laban seek? He seeks a covenant. Wow. So Laban and Jacob make a covenant erecting a pile of rocks and a pillar that stood as a testimony that they would not seek revenge on each side. And really, Laban has tucked in here and one commentator noted this is really, I thought, important. He says, there was a promise that Jacob would not return and try to claim the inheritance of Laban. Because guess what Jacob still has that he doesn't know he has? He's got the gods. And what do the gods represent? Inheritance. And so I don't want you to come back to do me harm. I don't want me to come over to your side and do you harm. But what would be harmful to Jacob, Laban's sons? For Jacob to come back and say, that's my stuff. I've got the gods. Everyone see this? The gods are here. It's my stuff. His gods, now in my possession, equals my rights. And so you see this thing being erected to, to separate them. And I want you to notice something. Where does God want Jacob to be? Where has he been? And God wants him to go back. And what is this thing, this covenant in between them? It's another wall that's going to keep him in Canaan, a commitment. Now, Jacob has no intention of coming back because Laban was always doing okay, but he got rich with Jacob. His wealth came with Jacob. And it's dwindled as the re relationship separated. And I don't think that the people in the community are dense to that. Huh, that Laban, he was doing okay, but now he's like crazy rich. That son-in-law, it was helpful. You know what I mean? That, that, that. And now there's this... So you see there's some, some sense of discernment in the community and Laban doesn't want anything to come back. So this ends Jacob's sojourn in Mesopotamia and in many ways, similar to how he lived there, it's an intrigue and conflict that it ends. Does it not? 
There's gods hidden under his wife's saddle that he knows nothing about. Laban is playing a political game. These are all mine. Give them to me. And Jacob saying, you're a horrible, wicked person who cheats and lies. I can't believe you're just like me. And you do this and you do all these bad things. And, and the people obviously rule that Jacob gets it. And this ends with conflict and intrigue. Everything goes and he is moving him away. And I want you to realize something. God is moving Jacob back home and he's burning bridges, right? That covenant, that pillar was a testimony they wouldn't seek things on the wrong side, but it also was a barrier of no return. If you're Jacob, why would you ever return to a place where the guy literally said, everything you have is mine? You get ruled on and then you say, oh, I'm going to go back there, see if they change their mind about this. No, right? You stay away. Um, God is, is setting a barrier and God is shaping Jacob's character. And, and I know it's, it's the first, it looks like the first chisel marks on his life, but we've seen that God's been speaking to him and God is moving. And I put as a question, do you allow God to shape you? This is a rough cut stone right here. I put take heart. If he can make something out of Jacob, he can make something out of you. Jacob is an interesting story because no one would pick him to be Israel. He's a lying cheat. He has connived and cheated his brother. I'm not saying Esau has, has any character on his part, but Jacob has not been a stellar example. His last vow to God, what did it include? When he made the vow at Bethel, it was a conditional promise, right? If you prosper me, I'll serve you. Well, God is working on him, but Laban is now taken care of. What is on Jacob's mind? It's not this confrontation by God. He's actually thinking about who, right? The next hurdle. So one is his father-in-law. What's his next interpersonal hurdle? His brother. Because as he leaves Mesopotamia, he goes right to where Esau is. And after dealing with Laban, Jacob immediately has to think on reconnecting with his brother, the one that vowed to kill him. This is the next monumental hurdle in front of him as he goes back to Canaan. And remember, why did Jacob leave Canaan to begin with? Well, he stole the birthright and Esau said, I want to kill him. And so Rebekah said to Isaac, please send him to go get a wife, thinking that Esau's anger would abate and Jacob could return. Why did Jacob leave Canaan to begin with? Esau. And now he has to come back and reconnect with his brother. But before he reconnects with his brother and faces whatever may come, he is confronted by God, and that's 32. As Jacob is camping, he's met by angels of God. It seems that only Jacob was able to see them. And so he calls the place Mahanaim. I'm terrible at pronunciation, we know that. But it means two camps, his and God's. Jacob now sends messengers before him to see Esau. So imagine you're Jacob. You've dealt with Laban. You just saw angels of God. You are calling this place two camps. You send out, you feel, feels like God is right there with them, right? And he is. He sends people to Esau now to find out what's going on. Seeking, he's saying to Esau, I don't need anything from you, and I'm also seeking your favor, Esau's favor. The re they return with no message from Esau except that he's on his way to meet Jacob with 400 men. 
Laban comes up with the people from town, the villagers, and is confronting Jacob and he states his case and what seems like a big hurdle seems like a nothing hurdle compared to what potentially is a super angry brother with 400 warriors because that's who's riding with them. This ain't village people. These are battle-hardened guys that are all answer to Esau. And so it makes what Jacob was thinking about with Laban nothing. If you look at verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. (laughs) Hey, the brother that said he was going to kill you is not sending any word back but he's galloping here on his camel or whatever he rides with 400 henchmen along with him. But don't worry, he's not angry with you anymore, right? I mean, what are you, what are you thinking if you're Jacob? Oh, I should have stayed with Laban, right? I, mean, I should have left everything to him. It'd be better than dying, right? So he divides his stuff up and he divided the people that was with him and the fox and the herds and the camels in two bands. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna split it up See, if one is attacked, maybe the other can escape. But that complete sense of inadequacy leads Jacob to something, and it's in 32, 9 through 12, and I call it, it leads Jacob to humbly pray. I want to read it, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidest unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not what? Worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. And I want you to notice something different about him for the first time. He recognizes that he is not what? Worthy. And he is honest to God about what? What is, what is on his mind right now? He's afraid. I'm afraid of what he's going to do. And he closes out his prayer with a, with a connection to God's promise. Not a man, and I don't want you to read it because he's a manipulative guy, so you always second-guess him. But he's not trying to manipulate God. He's just saying, hey, I'm just going back to what you told me, that you're going you're gonna to make, make something of me. That's a promise you've given me. And so in this prayer, I think we find the first change of attitude and heart. He acknowledges that God commanded. He acknowledges that Jacob himself is not worthy. He petitions for deliverance, seeing again his inadequacy, and reconnects to God's promise to do good and multiply him. What did he not say? God, I have done X, so you had better do Y. He just said, God, your promise is X. This is your promise. He bases none of his requests on himself. He's only basing his request on who? God. And actually, this makes, it's probably one of, I mean, there's plenty of illustrations of prayer. You got Daniel, who is mind-blowing how amazing his prayers are. But you're seeing early on in Genesis, one of the best prayers to read. Here is a man 
who has shown no spiritual disposition going to God and actually just being honest with God. I was a nothing, and now I have two bands, and he knows that's God. And he says, I'm not worthy of any of this. And then he says to God in a very honest way, I'm afraid. I fear for my life. I do not feel adequate. I cannot handle the situation. It is beyond me. And then he returns to God's promises. It's a good illustration for us because sometimes we forget to pray humbly to God, to tell him we're afraid and to repeat his promises to him. Not in a, you better do this way, but God, these are the promises you make. And that's it. God's promises rest on God. And that's where Jacob is. This is not the manipulative vow from Bethel, but instead an honest look at himself. Now, not a perfect guy. Just want to make sure we get that out there. But we see movement. He now arranges for quite the gifts to be sent to Esau. So now he sends 580 animals in five waves. Now, I know when we look at this, sometimes we think 580 animals, and and I don't know if the number registers. That's why I mentioned that farmer that's in our church that has a thousand cattle and it's a big herd have you ever seen a thousand cattle before in your life at one time who's seen it raise your hand if you've seen it does it look like a lot of animals okay no i haven't that's a lot of animals isn't it (laughs) i've never seen a thousand at one time just want you to get the, the, let your senses work here. Who wants a cookie? Just kidding. You, this, this over, I want you to get a picture of the volume of animals. Now, this is a gift he's sending forward. 580 animals. And if you read through the account, you'll notice it's a lot of female animals with a bull. He's sending not just a gift like, hey, take this, kill it and eat it. He's sending him stock. He's sending him a future. This is a gift that keeps on giving. It is a lot of animals. I don't even know what a cow goes for on the market. Do you know what you pay it for? 300 bucks? $3,000. Someone, Mr. Mr. Westergaard, math wizard, I want you to do 3,000 times 500. There we go. So keep going. 500 animals. It's a lot of money, isn't it? We there? Is he right? Mrs. Westergaard, you're the math wizard. You know the husband of your ass. Here's my question. Is that a lot of money? Who here can give away $1.5 million to their brother they haven't seen in 20 years? I wish I had brothers like that. <laughs> I've got six brothers. If they'd all just give me a million and a half dollars, I'd be doing great. But listen, think about this. I want you to think about the volume of gift this is. This is not peanuts. This is not a small number of animals. This is no minor thing. When you're done with this, you're going to see Jacob forcing Esau to take it. Say, please take it. I've been given much more. Uh, Jacob is ridiculously wealthy at this moment. Does that wealth change the fact that he's got an angry brother with 400 henchmen? Not even a little bit. Will all the sheep in the world keep a brother with 400 henchmen from killing you? No, not at all. Jacob is expecting an angry, militant brother to come take him out. And he is sending, and, and then there's, there's commentators are split. 
Some think that Jacob is taking things into his own hands. Some commentators don't. I agree with the ones that don't. I don't think he's not relying upon God. I think this is called common sense. Hey, why not? Why not, why not do what I can do? I have resources at my disposal. This is culturally very acceptable to do. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not trying to buy his brother. He's trying to tell his brother something by the gift. And so I think it's a smart move. And then what happens is he's hoping that he appeases Esau to cover the wrong is what he's saying. He hopes to appease him and that Esau would accept him, which is literally in Hebrew, lift up my face. So he's sending the animals forward saying to Esau, I want this to appease. What has he taken from Esau? Do you remember what it was? It's a birthright, right? Inheritance rights. And so he is giving to him $1.5 million. We'll throw a number out there that we can resonate with. Uh, quite a lot of money saying, I want to appease you. And his goal is, in Hebrew, is to lift the face. So I'm coming to you with my head bowed. That's what Jacob is saying. And he's hoping that Esau would lift the face, lift him up to say the relationship can be repaired. Then he sends his family over the Jabbok River, which is a tributary of the Jordan River. And he, for some reason, remains on the other side, which I want you to go all the way back. Who did he see? He named the place what? Two camps. Remember that? Manahayim. I saw the angels of God, but he's the only one that saw them. So he sends his family over. Why would he send his family over and he stays? There's no reason for him to stay on the other side, except for he's seen the angels of God. <coughs> what we're going to find is that before he's reconnecting with his brother, he's going to be confronted by God. And now we come, Jacob alone, and what we find in 22 through 32 of this chapter is that he persistently wrestled. And I'm going to run out of time, so I'm not going to read those verses 22 through 32. He's wrestling with God, and, and most commentators view this as a pre-incarnate Christ, and we see a battle for his attitude in his heart. It's a physical battle, but it signifies a spiritual struggle of, of Jacob's whole life, and that is, who leads in my life? Who's in charge? Me or God? And God clearly wins, but so does Jacob. What do we see here? This is, we see a new name and purpose. No longer is he the supplanter or deceiver, but instead he's called Israel, which is a fighter for God, a fighter with God, or may God strive for him. The definition is not perfect from Hebrew to English, but the idea is his name went from you're a deceitful person to you're a fighter. And the idea is connected to God in some way. He is one that has prevailed. What does Jacob realize? I've seen God, and I what? He lived. And he responds not in arrogance, but in submission. What happens when we defeat a, a superhero, right? You ever seen that? Someone defeats a superhero. What do they typically do? Gloat. There's no gloating here. Jacob realizes the only reason he could prevail was because God what? Allowed it. So he's not confident in himself God touches his hip, reminds him forever and all of Israel that God let him prevail. <laughs> Boom, and now you're walking funny and it changes the whole dynamic. Um, and what we have here is another turning point for Jacob. He is now committing to God's leading as he lets go of his own. He's changed the lead in his life. They said, wait a second, Kenny, he's obeying God. He is obeying God to leave Canaan, but you see all the selfishness, right? What's attached to his leaving Canaan? Who's upset with him? Laban, 
family. There's a lot of society pressure. We're going to actually see this kind of fall through, and I'll move quickly because I have 10 minutes. Um, I put here, here is a turning point of leadership, and then here's the question for us. Are we willing to change the lead in our lives? Will God be our purpose, or do we have a purpose of our own? Because his name changed, and so did his purpose. You are going from a deceiver. What are deceivers? Why do deceivers deceive? For their own, what? Gain. And now you're supposed to be one who strives for God. So what's your purpose now? You're not cheating for yourself. You're fighting for God. Again, it doesn't make him perfect. We're going to see that. But we're seeing this shift in Jacob, this massive shaping going on. Now we're going to get in 33 his connection with Esau. Um, Esau's on the horizon. Jacob lines up the family. And here shows his weakness from the least to the greatest. And I put in parentheses a sad picture of his favoritism. First the servants and kids, then Leah, and at the end, Rachel and Joseph. That, that communicates something, does it not? <laughs> um, kill those kids first, and then those kids, and then last and not least, this. Why not put them in a straight line or in one group? Now, thankfully, he leads off. He doesn't go behind them all. He does at least lead. But I want you to recognize the favoritism, and there's a couple things I want you to notice. We'll go into Joseph. Joseph is an amazing character in the Bible. And Joseph is not the line that Christ chooses to come through. By the way, it's Judah, right? Who is a son of Leah. And not the firstborn. Fourth one, right? And so I want you to recognize in all of Jacob's favoritism, and they were amazingly best because Joseph becomes Ephraim and Manasseh, two tribes. Massive blessings go on there. There's a massive pain and agony that goes with those tribes too later on in their history. But Christ comes from the line of, and actually look at this, Leah. God chose Leah and Judah. Who are the priests? And who is their mother? Leah. So I just want you to see a little bit of some of the connection that's there that comes in. But that favoritism is there and, and it's going to be ugly um, but it's all not needed because Esau runs to greet him. They reunite and rejoice in the reconnection. Esau wonders about the gifts, saying, I don't need your stuff. I'm fine. I'm wealthy. But Jacob insists on him keeping them. And he says, look at 3310. It says this. He says, and Jacob said, nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God and thou wast pleased with me. And know what some people say, there he goes again, kissing up and making up stuff. Esau, it's like seeing God when I see you, right? That's how some people read it. This is how you really read it. He sees in Esau's response, God's blessing. So God has orchestrated this response. So when he looks at Esau, I want you to realize he sees that God worked this out, not Jacob. He doesn't say 580 animals paid off. My trick worked. My game worked. My play worked. My politics worked. No, when he says to Esau, keep the gift because seeing your face this way lets me know the favor of God. I see God working. And so that reconnection comes in. Esau asked Jacob to come with him. Jacob says the pace is too much, which it would be. He turned down Esau's offer of men, and he returns. So Esau returns to Seir, and Jacob ends up at Succoth, 
and then Shechem. Now, before we continue the journey, take a moment to see God's hand. What is Jacob feared this whole time is Esau's anger and wrath. And what we get is what I call a very normal family reconnect. What is normal for family to do? If you haven't seen a family member for a while and you have a functional or semi-functional relationship, what do you typically do? Oh, right. This is if you see the grandkids that are in Florida, right? Did I guess the, you hug them, right? Yeah, because that's a normal thing to do. That's that's normal. Uh, when the kids see their cousins, when I see all my nieces and nephews, and I'm not a hugger, but they all come up to hug me. Why? Because whether or not I'm the best uncle in the world, and I'm probably not, I'm still their uncle, and they still like me, and it's normal to greet. So what we have is Esau and Jacob reacting like normal brothers would react. They greet each other like, hey, we miss each other. God has again protected Jacob, and he's worked miraculously through the circumstances. I put this as a question. Do you make a point of seeing God's hand in your life? Not fabricating God's hand in your life, but just seeing it. Jacob could see God's working in the response of his brother. He could have taken credit for it. It would have been wrong to take credit for it, but he could have. But he sees God's hand. Now, I know I'm running out of time, and I would delay this and finish it next week, but the problem is I have more to cover in the next two weeks than I typically can cover anyway, so I'm going to turn it on rapid speed. So we're going to dive into being connected with society. I'm going to sum this up without points. Here's what happens. The family goes and stays in Succoth, likely for a few years. This is outside of Canaan. Great grazing land, by the way. Then they cross over into Canaan, into Shechem, which is up, I'm going to use my hand, up here. They should go down to Bethel. They're up in Shechem. This is in the Canaanites. And what I call connected with society, what happens is Dinah goes out, or Dina, however you want to look at that, goes out and she mingles amongst the women in that society. Put it bluntly, she gets raped by the king's son. He, feeling bad and in love with her now, then says, I want to marry you. I want you to realize a couple things. He never apologizes for molesting her. You want to know why? Because that's normal in their culture. That is acceptable behavior. So you have this young girl heading out. She's not old. This is no battle wizen. This is a young teenager. She's out there. She gets violated by the king's son. He doesn't send her home. He takes her into his house and sends for, um, and his name is Shechem. He says, I, I falls in love and wanted to marry her. It was his comfort to her. He asks his dad to arrange the marriage, who connects with Jacob, who waits for her brothers, who concoct the plan of revenge by making a deal concerning circumcision. Shechem and his father convinced the populace to go along. He loved Dina, but also saw advantages of connecting with the family and gaining their wealth. If you look at 34.23, it's helpful to see their purpose, not that it excuses. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. How do you convince your whole town to engage in circumcision? You'll get rich. Otherwise, there's no way he's... I really love this girl, guys. You want to go get circumcised? So I, because I love her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great, Shechem. You're our buddy. We'd love to do that. Absolutely not going to happen. All right. Hey, they're super wealthy, and they're going to stick around if we do this, and we're going to have all their stuff. Now he loved. He doesn't. No one doubts his his version of love there. 
And so what happens is they agree to it. They all get circumcised. And then Dinah's brothers, Dina's brothers hurt society. Simeon and Levi kill all the men when they're at the height of their pain. By the way, that's mass murder. They're mad and they kill everyone. They don't kill Shechem and his dad. They kill all the men. Then the remainder of the siblings and half-siblings go in and sack the place, taking all the livestock and goods, along with the women and children as servants, and then destroy the rest. Destroy the houses, burn it down. So this is, this is Jacob, and I want you to realize what's taking place. They get sucked into society, they get hurt by society, and then they act worse than society. And then notice something and I want you to see this. They've been in Succoth for a long time, and they're in Shechem. Where does he need to be? He needs to get down to Bethel. He needs to get down to Isaac. He needs to get back to where he's supposed to be. And so they're, they bought land in Shechem. They have all this stuff going on in Shechem. And suddenly society hurts them, and they come back with worse against society. But here's what's fascinating to me. You know, God works all things according to his will, his plan. Romans eight twenty eight. And suddenly, in one action, what society wants Jacob to live near them? Hey, guys, the last people we leave near, we killed them all. We murdered every male. And if you mess with us, we'll kill you. We'll trick you. We'll destroy you. We'll wipe you out. Jacob even talks about it. He said, what's going to prevent these people from coming together and wiping us out? Well, the only thing that prevents them is God plants the fear of them in their hearts. But guess who doesn't want to be neighbors with Jacob? Everybody in Canaan. And guess who God doesn't want Jacob to associate with? There you go. Why did Abraham send back to Mesopotamia to get a wife? Why is Jacob sent away to get a wife? God has never wanted them to intermingle with the Canaanites. Why is Esau such a burden on his parents? He married Canaanites, pagans. People who didn't want to worship God, who rejected God. They've had the light in their midst. Abraham is there. They have rejected that light. They're not interested in that light. And so in an interesting way, God has removed their ability to be sucked into society. I put here, have you been sucked into society and maybe hurt because of it? And we know too many stories of family friends who get pulled into this world and its mantra and its life and their actions bear consequences that are painful. If Dina would have just not gone out with those women, but don't think it's on her. They wanted to connect with society. How do you connect with society? Hey, get involved out there. Go check out what's going on. She's not working on her own. But she got involved in society and got hurt by society and they came back in a worse way, and then I put here, if we behave worse in the world around us, and if so, what needs to change in our lives? If we look at the church and we see worse than the world, it should stop us in our tracks. It should be a smack in the face. It should be a, a jolting moment. And it is, it actually is for um, Jacob. You just notice things are unraveling. The family in response to the immorality of the land acts like the land. Their own morals corrupted, and sadly, they find justification in their behavior. Their father confronts them, which he was very weak in his actions. He should have dealt with the problem himself. But because he's got this messed up family with four wives and multiple children, he's got to wait till the full siblings come because we've got a weird dynamic that doesn't function well. Those brothers act in teenage, impetuous 
behavior. Come on, Jacob, you're, you're 100 some years old. You think you maybe can involve or show some discernment, right? There's none, right? It's missing. And so everything's just falling apart. Their actions make them odious and distant from the culture at hand, but distance from the world is not all that God desired. And this is really critical. God was not looking for them to disconnect with society and that to be the goal. He wants them what? Connected to him, connected with God. And that's what 35 and 36 are. It's time to get back to Bethel, to return to the place of Jacob's vow, to get back to where it all started. So God tells Jacob to return. And what I find interesting, by the way, he returns to Bethel with everything he conditionally asked God to give him. A right relationship with family, prosperous, all is well. Here's a guy coming back. He gave God a conditional vow and basically is going to show back up in Bethel. And not that God's going to throw it in his face, but basically the conditions were met. Not that God has to meet any conditions we give him, but he did for Jacob. Now, it's terrible because before he goes, now before he goes, Jacob does do a house cleaning. He removes all false worship and loyalties and he buries them near the oak, which is by Shechem. And one commentator wrote, why in the world didn't he destroy them? Probably because they would have a hard time giving it up. Dig a hole, bury this junk in it, put it by the oak. Where is the oak at? Shechem. What do they do in Shechem? Murdered everybody. Not the place you're coming back to. We're leaving. We're cleaning house. Now, we find that Jacob receives reaffirmed promises from God, Genesis 35, 9 through 15. I'm going to let you read that yourself. That's God appears unto Jacob, and, and it kind of reconnects some history, reaffirms the promise. And then this now is a clear step forward again in the life of Jacob and company, a clear connection and dedication to the one true God. They're going to still struggle in the future. We're going to see that almost immediately. But the foundations are being set firmly in God. And then here's a thought I think is worth pondering. He buried the idols by the oak in Shechem. Do we have things that need to be cleared out and buried? Because they had things in their life that needed to be out and buried. They had to get rid of it. There's a sense of, of cleaning that as a believer, I wonder sometimes if we don't get cluttered with materialism or with whatever isms that are out there and that we don't need to take stock at some point and clean house. Jacob now begins journeying to see his father Isaac to get back to where Abraham's from and Isaac has lived. But along the way, he loses Rachel, but he gets his final son, Benjamin. Rachel is buried in Ephrath, which they think is near Jerusalem slash um, um, Bethlehem, that that area is all in that region. And along the way, Reuben engages in immorality with Bilhah, something that Jacob heard about yet addresses much later. It is here that we get a rundown of his kids. He gets all of the sons and we get some closing data that sets the stage for the next generation's role in the saga. Isaac dies at 180. By the way, he doesn't die until after Joseph is sold into slavery. So he gets to walk through with Isaac the pain of losing Joseph um, through that time. Esau's lineage is given in chapter 36, closing out his story. Why? Because he's not part of the lineage. So here we have Jacob and Esau, and Esau has played such a critical part. And in one chapter, God gives you his whole history, the, the important part. And what you'll notice is there's so many people on Esau's history who are enemies of who? Israel, Amalek, and a lot of other ones. Because Esau is moving off the stage. We're going to kind of zero in now on Joseph, and then we're going to see in Exodus that it moves quickly to 
Moses and the Exodus out of there, but we're seeing a change in the story, and so it's moving along. But here, as we move on to the next stage with a new set of actors taking the lead roles, we've learned a lot from Jacob and family, and here's a couple ones. God keeps working on somebody. How patient was God with Jacob? (coughs) How many years is he working with him? Two, God leads in a life. God takes the lead. He's Israel. He's going to strive for God. Strive with God. Strive on the part of God. He has a purpose that's not his own. I put here, are we willing to be led? And then God sets us apart for him. And we see that in a society thing. We have been set apart, just like they were set apart. We are set apart. And then here's the question. Are you set apart from society or are you sucked into it? Because that's a critical connect point with a Dinah or Dina story, however you're supposed to pronounce that. That story drives us to be confronted about ourselves because right now the church is awfully enamored with society. It's so connected, it's responding to anything the society throws out. And you don't see from Jacob's story where God wants that. He wants to set apart, not out, not, we're not monks, we're not in a monastery, but he does want to set apart because we're supposed to be ambassadors to this society, which we are in the world, but not of the world. That's the New Testament wording for it. The problem is we're both in and of the world. And that's the danger. And we need to be separated from society, set apart. And then God desires real connection. God is not just looking for you to be set apart. He wants you connected to him. He closes out with Jacob being connected with him and family. God desires real connection. So is your life connected to his? Where is your connection?